Hello, and welcome to She Dynasty. I'm Valerie Moiselle, and these are the women who rule. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to She Dynasty. I am very excited to welcome Alexandra Fine. She's the co-founder and CEO of Dame. She is also a sexologist. Dame is not only revolutionizing toys for sex, but changing the way we experience, understand, and explore sexuality as part of our holistic well-being. Also, if you haven't already, please subscribe and follow our podcast on any major platform. We really, really would appreciate the support. Hi, Alexandra. So nice to have you on She Dynasty today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So um, Dame is such an incredibly interesting company. I'm so excited to learn all about it, how you got here, your entire journey. Um, Obviously, it's going to spark some really interesting conversation. Um, You know, sexuality is not something that I'm super, super comfortable talking about. So I'm hoping you're going to take me out of my comfort zone a little bit today. Um, so I'm mentally preparing for that. So that's, so that's good. So, um, you know, before we get into kind of how you got here, tell us a little bit about Dame. Yeah. So Dame is a sexual wellness brand. Um, we are on a mission to close the pleasure gap. So women are four times more likely than men to say that sex has been not at all pleasurable in the past year. Um, and we believe we can change that. And there's many, many factors that go into it. But one thing we know for sure is that external stimulation is really um, a powerful experience for vocal bodied people. And we make toys that generally focus on that and kind of just honor pleasure in that way. I love it. And so let's talk a little bit about um, sexual wellness because um, it feels, maybe it's just me again, because I'm not someone who has lots of conversations about this, but is sexual wellness a relatively new term or um, is it something that's been around for years and years and I'm just not in the know? It's been, uh, the term sexual wellness has been around for a while. And actually now I'm curious, you know, like when it has been coined, but like the study of sex has been around for, for a long time. But definitely in the 1800s, people were already starting studying sex in some way. Um, and, you know, I think philosophically before that, for sure. Um, but like, I think the terms definitely become more popular of late. It's definitely a very empowering term. So, you know, obviously we, we want to want to dig into that and, you know, really kind of open up the conversation um, you talk a lot about, you, you just mentioned that there's um, some research that shows that, um, so you just mentioned that women are four times more likely than men to um, admit that that sex is not as pleasurable as they'd like it to be, or as it could be. Is that right? Yeah. So um, how do you get that data? That's actually from a study that's actually, I think, from like 2010. Um, but there's a lot of other data points that we could point to that I can kind of kind of come up to the same thing, whether it's the orgasm gap, you know, how like the frequency of having an orgasm during a sexual encounter, um, it's much more frequent for, for men than it is for women. 
And they're, you know, so that's like another way of us understanding this gap. But I've always been, I, I, I think the concept of pleasure and just like subjectively, do we feel satisfied is so much more, such a more powerful idea than like whether or not we just had an orgasm. Right. And do you think women are just more likely to not do something about it if they can't figure out how to, you know, just get the sexual pleasure that they're looking for? Do they just kind of look the other way and just kind of deal with it? Or do you feel like more women are trying to, you know, kind of take command and do something about it? I think more and more women are taking command and trying to do something about it. It's really cool. But I think for hundreds and hundreds of years, we've been told a lot of women are, are, are taught that sex just might hurt. And that's part of it. You know, we think about like this virginity story and, you know, it's painful. I mean, there's a lot of, and, and I yeah, mean, I could really dive into this, but um, there is pain sometimes with sex. Yep. And there's definitely more pain, like for women, I think more frequently. So like addressing that, pretending like that's not the case, isn't going to solve that. And tell me, can you tell us just like a, a just a, a smattering of like what kind of products do you sell? Just give us some some. I sell everything from a squishy clitoral vibrator to arousal serums and lubricants to a body positioning pillow. Got it. So it's just like everything you could possibly want under the sun that would kind of help with your sexual sexual wellness, correct? Yes. Yes. So we have a range of products from vibrators to lubricants to arousal serums. And we also um, have courses and, and workshops that we do too and some education. Fantastic. And what is the average age of someone who um, you know buys product from your company or, or uses your services? It's a pretty wide demographic. And I would say that a 33-year-old new mom is definitely a big part of our clientele. Mm -hmm. Um, But when we were in the New York Times, we've been in the New York Times a few times, but the very first time we we had a big feature on us, the number one demographic on our website for the whole month was 65 plus. What? Amazing. I love that. So it's like almost like a resurgence of people finding their sexualities. Yeah. And just, there's always something to learn and something that can shift there for all of us all the time. I mean, I think it's such a big part of that journey is the way sex when we're 20 and sex when we're 45 and sex when we're, it's different. It does change and we need to find new ways of relating to pleasure. And that's kind of part of the fun, I think. Well, let's talk about how, um, how you got here and how you started Dame. So I want to start, uh, back to, um, your childhood. Um, so first of all, when you were a kid, what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? Everything. Uh, <laughs> I definitely think I wanted to be famous and in charge. Okay. So you just kind of knew you kind of had like an entrepreneurial spirit about you. You had something that wanted to put you in the center of, of kind of the limelight. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love people. I love people so much. I love connecting with new people. I love bringing community together. Um, so those were things that were always, you know, important and fun. I love, I like 
I enjoy fun, if you could believe it. Um, so I love to dance, and yeah, I was very curious. And so that's what I was like when I was little. I was very curious and fun and bold. Did your parents ever talk to you about sex when you were a child? Yes, I think that all, all parents talk to their kids about sex, if not explicitly implicitly there was always messaging in around sex um but my parents did i would say had a you know pretty like a pretty modern ish approach or in the 90s they were you know wasn't told like having sex before marriage or like losing my virginity was bad but i was told you know that if you kiss a lot of boys people will call you a slut which wasn't not true Right. You know, my parents never spoke to me about sex. They're both immigrants. And I think it was just that where they come from, they just, that wasn't a topic. I kind of had to figure it out on my own. So um, I have two daughters and made a very different decision um, with my older daughter. Um, when she was, I think, 10 or 11, we, me and um, her best friend's mom decided to do kind of like a tag team, sit down and have like the sex talk. And for some reason it did not go well at all. And both kids ran out of the room crying. So we did something very terrible that day. And I still can't figure out what it is that we did wrong. Um, but I have a younger daughter who's now 15. And so because of how bad that first experience was, I haven't figured out how to do it the second time better. So if you have any pointers. <laughs> so, so many amazing resources. I'm happy to point your way. But I, one thing is also, it doesn't need to be a sit down talk. Sometimes it comes up more organically. And, and I think that's tough because sometimes you're not prepared for it as a parent, right? Sometimes it comes up really, you know, kids ask, where do we come from? You know, different parts of the sex talk to different moments. And yeah. Yeah, I think that was my problem. I tried to make it this very like, we bought this book and it was all, you know, we kind of followed a guy. It just was too much all at once. And I think to your point, like little moments of talks are probably building up to the bigger conversations, probably where it should be. Yeah. And letting them have the conversation too, when they're ready, because that's like so much about, I think what makes sex a good experience is, you know, it's kind of happening somewhat organically. So tell me, when did you start exploring sexual health on a personal level? I don't know. I, I know that when I was in middle school, I start I, I started to become more was always curious about relationships. And then I became more sexually curious about those relationships and like the sensations associated with that and felt very much like I was told by my community that was like not not okay. Kind of I think from there that sparked an interest. And was there any, was there any other kind of sparks in your childhood that you feel you can look back at now that shaped your career as an entrepreneur? You know, obviously when you're a child, you're probably not thinking about what company you're going to start when you're older, but was there anything specifically that sparked that you can remember, um, you know, that entrepreneurial spirit or something that carried through to where you are today? I was like, um, the treasurer of every extracurricular you know, I was like the treasurer of lesbian society. I was pretty much, I would go to a club when I would let them know that I was like really good at being the treasurer and uh, I managed money for all the clubs, including like student council. And then I was also president of a few, but I think that I loved like those small group leadership or ca like 
things like that when I was younger, even, and would, I started a dance team. Uh, I like at my high school, we didn't have a dance team. And I, so I created it and then I quit it. So, you know, but that was (laughs) entrepreneurial, I think of me. Um, So tell me, um, how did your college experience um, and studies shape your course in your career today? I really do feel like I got such good things from different parts of my studies. Mm -hmm. You know, when I got my master's in psychology, so I thought I wanted to be a therapist for a long time. So that was, but really what I learned in psychology was how to put math to like behavioral patterns. Mm -hmm. Actually, a lot of like when I'm doing e-commerce marketing now, and like there's just a lot of really good math skills I think that I learned through psychology. What was wait? What was your undergrad major? So psychology was my undergrad major, and then I minored in fine arts, women, gender, and sexuality studies. And then at the prestigious uh, institution of Washington University in St. Louis, they also had a business program. So I, I also like had a, essentially another minor in business and got to take, uh, accounting and leadership classes. So I remember at the time, my mom was like, why are you doing all these things? They don't make sense together. Like art and business don't go together. And like, you know, she was like, what are you doing? What do you want to do? I was like, I don't know. Um, and then I, you know, got my master's in clinical psychology and thought I wanted to be a therapist. But now I just feel like all of those things were so helpful for where I am now. And it was amazing to just get to explore just different interests. Yeah. I love that you kind of mix those three things like psychology, art, business. Um, it seems like a perfect match to where you are today. I mean, yeah, but I guess like chemistry would have been really cool too. That could have been helpful. Yeah. There's so many, there's, I think within whatever you do, there's good lessons that kind of go beyond it. But I do feel like also like psychology is also just so great for managing um, psychology and just interpersonal relationships and caring and understanding dynamics and human dynamics is so helpful in life. It is. It really is. And then from Wash U, you went to Columbia for your master's. Mm-hmm. Yes, I did. So you went to two just like extraordinary schools. Yes. Amazing. And um, do you feel, did you always kind of, um, as a child, did you always kind of aim really high educationally or tell us a little bit about how, how that came to be? I was just highly engaged. So I, 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 you know, I don't know. I was good at school too. A lot of school came easy to me. I think can also end up being really challenging when you start when it doesn't come easy. Like Spanish was just so hard. And I just like, like it felt a lot more devastating for like to, to fail in some way and not really know how to learn because a lot of learning like was just happening in class. And then also when I went to college, you have to learn a lot more through books on your own. And then it's like, and that, that really threw me. I just preferred to, um, be in class and learn from the teacher and learn through like conversation and like play in the classroom versus like being in a library and reading. And that was really hard for me. Um, And when you think like something that they teach you in psychology is like, now there's like, you're not supposed to doing air quotes about supposed to tells you, tell your kids they're smart. They say that you tell them that they're such hard workers. 
And there's something about that that really makes sense because I definitely just thought I was smart. And I think it's actually so much more important to be resilient and to be a hard worker. Tell us, um, when was the first um, moment in your journey that, um, you know, you thought about starting a sexual wellness company? Was that in college, after college? When did that happen? You know, I actually, I had a journal that was from college where I was like, what? I was just kind of like vision boarding. It's like, what can I do with this like interest, passion about like, just like talking about sex and relationships and taking a lot of these, these really important parts about creating your life, like dating. And like, I loved the talking about that. Like, how can I turn that in to work? And I had like a list and one of them was like make vibrators. And like, I love making and inventing. So yeah, but I remember at the time also it being like, be a professor, be a sex therapist. And I think that like, maybe one of the negative aspects of, of academia was just like kind of going down the path that's like laid out before you, like the path to the vibrator was like, I don't know, like, you know, there's yeah, no, this is one of my questions, just because obviously, you know, you're here, you are at all these extraordinary schools. It's like somehow in a lot of people's brains that doesn't like lead to like starting a sexual wellness company. But I actually love, love that, 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 that education kind of led you there. And I understand that you actually joined forces with an MIT trained engineer named Janet Lieberman Liu who turned some of your experiments into real life products, which, you know, further kind of um, exemplifies the point that I'm trying to make here. You guys are like these highly educated, um, obviously group of women, um, you know, trying to change, change the world in such an interesting and different way than, you know, probably the, the path that most people take when they go through these schools. So tell us about that experience. I mean, for, it's interesting if you chat with Janet, whose experience was a little bit more of like coming out as a sexual wellness, somebody who wanted to make sex a more public part of their life. You know, that, that was a more of a, of a conversation and, you know, like my parents knew I wanted to be a sex therapist. Like when I was in, I, you know, I was already kind of talking about it in college. Um, they were like not surprised. Um, they were just thrilled that I wanted to do something entrepreneurial or being a therapist. I feel like what I think there there's this assumption that sex doesn't have a space in like civilized society or something that like being like going to one of these prestigious universities that like they then can talk about sex is like frivolous. But I think that I obviously very much disagree with that. And then there's just a lot I think that for so long in philosophy and art in so much of what I think really brings education and those institutions to life has so much like eros in it, if you will. So did you feel like there was pressure though, because you had gone to such elite schools that this was not the track that you should take just because of, you know, kind of what society tells you, what you should be when you go to schools that are as elite, as elite as you did? I don't think so. Maybe it's because like, also like if you want, like in Columbia, my masters, like now they have a whole spirituality aspect of the psych, of like the school that I went to there. 
Um, now you can actually do like, I think like applied psychology, the spirituality course, but they already had a lot of that. I learned about mindfulness and positive psychology and oh my God, it's an amazing course on motherhood. And like, just like this experience that women were, you know, reading like narratives of women, just like talking about what it was like to feel super isolated or what it's like to play with your kids all day and feeling touched out. And I don't know, Uh, but they were really encouraging of that. I felt like academia for me there was like academics in academia are not as, um, they don't apply the same pressure as say your parents apply. Right. And were your parents always super supportive of this idea? They were pretty, yeah, my parents were pretty supportive. My mom, I think her quote was, you know, if your daughter makes apple pie, you got to try the apple pie. And I thought that was very, I loved that. I appreciate that. That's a great quote. This is a good quote. Um, so, and my grandparents were one of the first people to support me on crowd, a crowdfunding campaign. They were like one of the first donations that came in. And yeah, they were all really supportive of it. Um, you know, sometimes people worry, but I didn't. I love that. And so when did you, and what year did you actually... Um, kind of create, you know, start Dame and make your your first product. In 2014, I started the brand. Uh, we launched on Indiegogo in October of 2014. And we product in early 2015. And within one year, I had done a million dollars in sales and shipped over 10,000 units around the world. Amazing. And now? Now uh, we do like hundreds of that. Like it's... Uh, it's amazing. We are in Sephora. We are in Bloomingdale's and Nordstrom's. And yeah, it's just a big business. We're like 20 plus people. And yeah, I've raised institutional money from institutional investors. Love it. And is it also um, direct to consumer online? It's mostly direct to consumer online. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you're in Bloomingdale's and Sephora is you're showing, I mean, that's how you're kind of revolutionize, revolutionizing the way we talk about pleasure, because I'm sure for the years and years, there was not those products and those, you know, those types of stores, right? Just being there, I think is really profound. So you talk, um, you talk a lot about closing the pleasure gap. Can you explain what that means? Yeah. I mean, I think we talked a little bit about it earlier with the, the stat. But for us, you know, if women are experiencing less pleasure, I think that is one. I think that that is a allegory, it's an optic, a KPI, a measurement for just gender equality in general. I think that like how, you know, whether or not we feel entitled to pleasure. And I mean, I, I don't know. I do think that the womanly quality of putting other people first is also really, really beautiful. But I do think that some equity do it too much or we're clearly doing it a lot more maybe than our partners um, in relationships and um yeah which also by the way the the gap is a pretty heterosexual problem mm-hmm. uh, if you dive into it it's not you know lesbians and gay men do not have the same queer relationships don't have the same dichotomy 
um, which is interesting. Do you cater more to heterosexual couples or not necessarily? I try to, I would say on the one hand, I, I we try to cater to anybody that has a vulva and anybody that has sex with somebody that has a vulva. Like most of our products are really designed for like clitoral stimulation, um, like our whatever. So in that sense, it's more just about the vulva body is what we're centering around. But that could be anybody. That can be heterosexual or or home. Like you can be queer in any way. Most of, but like you know, I think our very first pro- product, which when we were talking about the pleasure graph, we were talking about something that really was a heterosexual challenge. And for and for those who are listening, how would you know if you're in poor if you're in poor sexual health or um you know you're just kind of not meeting your potential? What would be like a checklist for people listening to be like, hmm, I should check out Dame and their products? And I think there's this amazing book by Dr. Bhatshiva Marcus called Sex Points that literally has like a little checklist in it to answer this question. So I will both point people there. But I would say like the most important thing is it's like a self-check-in. It's literally like there's there's like um, secondary questions we could explore. But I think the main question is you asking yourself, like, do I want more sexual pleasure in my life? What was it like when I had more? If I used to have more, what, what do I miss about it? And just kind of asking yourself what you want from sex. Do you feel like there's a lot of women who just kind of accept that? their sex lives are not great and they just kind of just go on. Yeah, totally. But I also think you can masturbate, right? Like there's like so, there's so many ways that you can expand your sexual pleasure in your life. And I think that, um, yeah, I've done like some research where I asked women like, you know, how satisfied are you? And I asked men and women were less sexually satisfied than men. And then I asked a follow-up question was how interested are you in improving your sex life? Mm-hmm. And men are still much more interested in improving it than than women. And how have ideas of pleasure and masturbation been? Um, how are they becoming more n- normalized? In your opinion, I think the the easiest thing to point to is just the amount that um, the increase in conversation in pop culture and, and media. You know, it was 1998 when Sex in the City famously had a vibrator on not TV, but HBO. And now we see it on, you know, Netflix. You know, we have streaming services. And um, I mean, I also think that the democratization of content creation allows for so much more honest conversation to be had or less policed conversation, but it's still heavily policed, right? And um, what about from a marketing standpoint? How do most people find out about your product? Is it through social media? Is it word of mouth? Do you have a marketing campaign? Tell us a little bit about that. Really hard to market in the industry, um, like in some ways. So yes, like on the one hand, a lot of people do find out about us on social media. We have an Instagram account that's like educational and fun and, you know, an ode to pleasure. Um, but I can't run, I can't run ads on Instagram. Like, so I I can't. Oh, interesting. Tell us about that. So ads are not allowed because of the sexual nature. Yes, exactly. Oh, wow. I didn't even realize that was a thing. Are you allowed to do digital marketing, like retargeted digital marketing for people searching? I can't do retargeted. You can't do retargeted now for maternity wear. What? Wow. 
And the idea is that if you are pregnant and maybe you're at work and you don't want people around you to know anything, things that things that are intimate knowledge, Google doesn't want to be the reason why that intimate knowledge gets. Ah. So that is their ideas. Now I think, which actually I would say to me makes a little bit more sense than what Instagram and Facebook are doing. Are you allowed to, are you allowed to run a TV ad? I can run TV ads. Interesting because it's not a retargeting. Yeah, it's not there. Yes. And also, you know, you can't show people having sex in a TV ad, but they have to be smarter in my opinion, often in that they are, their rules and regulations are often just about the, the content of the ad. Right. Facebook saying like, if you push people to a website that has a vibrator. Right. And have you ever, have you ever tried running a television ad? Not yet. Interesting. Okay. And what are, what are kind of, what do you have? I mean, are there goals that you can share for the company? Like what is the dream for Dame? I definitely have both financial dreams for it, but on a, I think a more powerful dream for it is to continue to make the change that we're making by being in places like Sephora. And what that means is to help create, help close the pleasure gap. It's to help educate, help people honor the sexual pleasure in their life and have more joy. And I want to see it, you know, it spills over. It's not just in our sex life. And what is Dame Labs? Dame Labs is, if you want to come help us, help us, help you help us make uh, better offerings. So, you know, it's like surveys, product testing on occasion. Um, yeah, you can sign up to be a, like a tester and help us develop our products. So we kind of do some crowdsourcing when we're in our product development. Such a great idea. And so um, I understand that one of your sport sparks, the story um, goes that you started Dame on a kitchen table with some silver dollar coins and some saran wrap. Tell us that story. Okay. I I think that I would say that the very first day of work, the day that Dame started was that day maybe, where I had this idea for what eventually became our first product, Eva. Eva is a hands-free clitoral vibrator that you can wear while you're having penetrative sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of it is that there's a vibrator nestled in between your labia on top of your clitoris. So I just took a half dollar coin because at the time I, I used to use a half dollar coin, wrapped it in some cellophane and put it in between my labia and it stayed in place. And that was like my original proof of concept. I mean, I went on to, if you see the product, realize it needed some more dynamic aspects in order to really stay in place. Sometimes you just use some household items to figure it out and then you figure out how to make it for real, right? Yeah, it's amazing what you can figure out with just household items. Tell us, um, what has been one of your biggest snags? Like one of the hardest things for you to have to ever overcome in your professional career? Just something that was just a really hard moment that you learned from. I think, you know, they, I always touch them every now and then. You know, there are things that you can't control. And whenever, you know, there are definitely moments where I just really think I can control everything. And that if I was just doing something differently, things would be different. And, you know, maybe, maybe there's some element of that, of that, that is true. Mm -hmm. 
you know, like there have been moments, I mean, inventory management is so hard, whether you're overstocked, understocked, it doesn't matter. It's hard. Um, and sometimes, you know, you can't predict that you're going to be on the Megan Kelly Today show and like sell out of all of your products. And like, yes, it would be great to have had more and vice versa. That goes in the opposite direction too. So yeah, those are always moments. Um, that one, I think, you know, I would argue that it's always better to be out of stock than overstock. Um, Absolutely. So kind of supply chain issues, um, has that affected you the way it's um, affecting other companies right now because of the pandemic? Define how it's affecting other companies. I mean, we're definitely having... A lot of companies are having a hard time getting products, you know, shipped and there's, you know, things are stuck on ships and they can't find materials and costs are going up. And, you know, just a lot of my clients and in the, that, you know, that we do marketing for having major supply chain issues. I was just wondering if it affects your, your business. It does. It does. We've actually done a really good job of ordering in advance. So we wouldn't go out of stock. Yeah. Good. Smart. Very cool. And so you, do you just keep everything at one big warehouse? Yes. And that, is that in New York? No, it's in San Francisco. All right. So I want to move a few more questions about some shifts that you've had. So you, you mentioned um, that a major shift is the attention you put to the activism and the role that plays in your business. And you touched on it a little bit, but talk about the importance of that and what you're doing. Because obviously this is more than just selling a product for you. You're really trying to create a movement, which I love. Yeah. I mean, honestly, then there's been a lot of moments where just the company, like the company hits a wall that is unique to the experience of the company. Meet like things like Facebook ads. Um, I wasn't allowed to run advertisements on the MTA subway system after they spent like six months telling me that I could run ads and then eventually like just ghosted me. And didn't respond to emails, and then we're like, "Oh, we don't work with any sex like any sexually oriented businesses." Meanwhile, Hims and Romans and the Sex Museum, the Museum of Sex in New York, all of those places were running advertisements on the subway. So I was like, "Wait, what? This doesn't make any sense. Why are you really, why are you saying no to me, but saying yes to the Museum of Sex, which is like this amazing place that also sells our vibrators? Like they have a huge gift shop where we do really well, and they're like." amazing. Um, and they just couldn't really give us a good answer. And eventually like, so that was like a wall that Dame hit. And I realized what we had, right. That weren't being, we were being treated fairly and we sued the New York city subway system. And you, did you win? We got to run ads. We settled. Fantastic. I love that. Good for you. I mean, that must be hard to constantly have to navigate what you're allowed to do and not do and how to position it. And I mean, that's, that's gotta be a giant hurdle to overcome constantly. It's incredibly difficult and it's, it's really challenging. And the ideas of what is socially acceptable are, you know, really made up and which is interesting. And it's, it's just, it's hard. It's hard because it changes the playing field. So if, your ads can't be run, but your competitor ads are being run just because Facebook turned off your ads or Google, whatever it is, you know, one day that's really, it's just challenging. Well, it seems like, you know, sexual wellness is something that, um, you know, almost every, you know, it's interesting because obviously as, as you know, or maybe you don't, but I'm in marketing, I own an advertising agency. And, um, you know, oftentimes when we 
advertise on television, you know, the reason a lot of companies don't like television is because there's a lot of waste, meaning you're not always charging the right people, but it seems like sexual wellness is something that everyone can, you know, kind of relate to. So I do want to just ask you, um, a couple of, you know, rapid fire questions, um, just for you to answer quickly. Uh, don't mind just the first thing that kind of comes to your, to your mind. Um, and that is what keeps you up at night? That feels very personal. Um, I try to have very nothing, but right now inventory. Okay. And what do you think is your greatest strength? My ability to connect with others. And what is your greatest weakness? I'm, I'm like too, I share a lot. And if you could completely switch careers and do something totally different, what would it be? Sometimes I still really dream about being a therapist. Okay. And um, what does success mean to you ultimately? Success means to me, it's a balance between waking up and enjoying my day every day and then making a shit fucking ton of money. (laughs) I want to do both of those things. It's really hard though to find the balance. And I think the second one isn't as important. You know, but it do, I do feel like this desire to like prove something like, I don't know. And, and for those who, you know, have that kind of entrepreneurial bug, like what is your one piece of actionable advice for people who want to start a company? For people who want to start a company, let's say it's validate your idea, figure out, like figure out how you can either make it in the kitchen or do a survey, just get some validation that it's a good idea from somebody that's, that's something or a community that's objective. All right. Well, Al, I think you've answered all of my questions today. I really, really love this conversation and so excited for people to listen. And thank you. Thank you for the time to do this. 